Chapter 11 First of the Funerals I had forgotten about Daddy's earlier absence at dinner. Now, as he stood in my doorway, I saw on his face a visible manifestation of the fear which had been creeping into my own heart. His normally rich complexion looked pallid and worn. His hair, always so neatly combed, was ruffled and unkempt, and caused me to wonder if he had been in a fight like me. Mama likewise discerned that something was amiss. Standing to attention, she asked, What is it, John? What's happened? Daddy's voice was hollow and distant. We decided to close down early today. What do you mean? Was there an accident? Is everyone all right? Not an accident. Sickness. Dr. Schumacher says it's the flu, but that it's worse than before. Two of our underground workers got it, and three from the plant. They all have fevers, among other symptoms. Who? Mama inquired. Her brow was furrowed with concern. Carl Sanderson and Jacob Stern from the mine. Then the Arndt twins went home from the plant this afternoon. And just before I left the office, Doc called to tell me Caleb Lassiter fell ill this evening. Same thing. I could hardly believe my ears. Caleb Lassiter? Not six hours ago I had overheard him talking with Miss Carrington outside the school doors, and he sounded healthy as a horse. How could that change so quickly? It seemed impossible. Surreal. Mama wrapped her arms around Daddy and kissed him. She gave him her brightest smile and said, Everything will be fine. It'll blow over before too long, just like last time. Yeah, probably. Daddy didn't sound convicted. Any idea how long you'll be closed? For the time being, tomorrow and through the weekend. We'll let everything air out a bit. It's probably a good idea. And it wouldn't hurt for you and Jacob to relax a few days in the meantime. Play your violin. Play with your boys. Play with me. Daddy's attempted grin was flimsy and false. That sounds all right, I suppose. A couple days off will be good for everyone, especially since we decided to pay our workers for whatever time they're missing. Mama's admiration was deep and genuine, as she said, That's very good of you, my good husband. Their embrace lingered. Daddy only broke it when he saw the reddening pillowcase pressed against my forehead and realized his home had also witnessed recent turmoil. What happened here? he asked. Oh, just a little roughhousing that got out of control, Mama lied. Dr. Schumacher is on his way over to patch him up. It's nothing a few stitches won't remedy. I could hardly believe my ears. For a moment it seemed like a fresh betrayal, Mama's covering for Walter. I wanted my villainous brother to pay for what he had done, and if Daddy knew, Walter certainly would have. But my ire cooled when I realized Mama had also failed to mention both my cursing of Walter and the fact that I had come at him first. If she had, my hide would have ended up redder than the bloody linen on my face, right along with Walter's. I decided to call it even. You boys need to be more careful. 
Daddy said. He was trying his hardest to scold me, but his words were flat. We will, I promised. Sorry. Daddy winked and offered me the weariest of smiles, then said, I'm beat. I think I'll eat something and go to bed. Sounds like you need it, said Mama. And John, please don't worry yourself sick. Everything will be fine in a couple days. I'm sure of it. And for the next twenty-four hours, I believed Mama's iron-clad assurances to be as irrefutable as they had been in the past. Dr. Schumacher wove four stitches into my left eyebrow. The bleeding turned to a sticky ooze and then into a scab. The next day at school, Walter was kinder to me than ever before, grateful, I'm sure, to have escaped a grisly fate at the retributive hands of Daddy. He had no idea it was Mama, not me, to thank for his narrow escape. When we returned home that afternoon, Daddy informed us that Caleb Lassiter was expected to make a full recovery, and that a couple of his other workers already had. My family spent the evening enjoying a picnic on Asphodel's waving lawns. This was followed by freshly baked sugar cookies and a game of croquet. Besides having to go to school, it was such a wonderful day, I almost didn't care when Walter beat me by three strokes. Even when he caught me that night, stroking the cool fabric of my bibby along my cheek, Walter kept his usual insults to himself. Since the following day was Saturday, I fell into a worryless sleep, wondering how the weekend could possibly outdo such a superb evening. But the next day brought a drizzly gloom, the kind that keeps even adventurous boys indoors. Daddy fiddled to liven things up in our castle home, but it wasn't long before his tunes took on a mournful spirit. At half-past noon, the telephone rang. Daddy answered in his den. The closed door muffled the conversation, but we gleaned enough from his tone to know it wasn't some trivial chat about the weather. He hung up, and minutes of tense silence followed. The rest of us, including Mama, eventually worked up the courage to enter unbidden. We needed to know what developments had transpired. Unable to muster more than a whisper, Daddy said, Caleb took a turn for the worse. Doc doesn't think he'll make it long. The physician's prophecy came to pass before midnight. I never would have thought I might someday feel bad for Jeremiah Lassiter, but at his daddy's funeral that Monday morning, I couldn't help myself. The same kid who had always delighted in making other kids cry was now crying himself, tears streaming like someone had pulled the stoppers out of his eyes. In a matter of hours, his world had shattered, and there was no one left to help him sweep up the jagged shards. The tormentor had become the tormented, and I could only imagine what would become of my orphaned schoolmate. Despite my surge of empathy, I found I couldn't say anything at all to him. I wanted to, but I was unable to think of a single word that might unburden him of even an ounce of his fierce grief. Besides that, I figured enough of the adults were already lavishing their condolences on him. I could always talk to him at school the next day, 
and my compassion would speak louder when it wasn't being drowned out by so many others. That was why, when I passed by him after the funeral proceedings, I averted my gaze and stared at my feet. It was the last time I ever saw Jeremiah Lassiter. When we arrived at school the next day, his desk was empty, cleared out. Immediately, the rumors flew. Joe Murdoch claimed Jeremiah had hopped a westbound train to dig for gold in California. Cassandra Dieter heard he had already gone to, and been kicked out of, an orphanage in Philadelphia. The truth was far less outrageous. Daddy, whose ears were well attuned to the news of Pierre, explained that Caleb's estranged but well-to-do brother had taken Jeremiah to live with him in Manhattan. Overnight, he had gone from rural bumpkin to big city elite. Fate, it seemed, had shown at least a modicum of mercy by elevating the orphaned boy to a loftier social stratum. But the disappearance of Jeremiah Lassiter wasn't the only big news to occur that Monday. Shortly before our afternoon dismissal, an elderly gentleman, wearing a severe and indelible frown, stepped into the classroom. I had seen him once before, but I didn't know his name, only that he was a member of the Pierre School Board. Miss Carrington instructed us to give him our attention, then stepped aside. I could have sworn I heard the old man's jaw creak as he spoke. With an airy voice, he said, My name is Olaf Kirk. I've been a member of the Pierre Primary School Board for over four decades, but what I am about to share with you is utterly unprecedented during my time here. The electricity of gossipy whispers rippled throughout the classroom. Silence, please, he demanded, raising a stern hand. We shut up, not so much out of respect, but because we needed to know what could have brought this wrinkled bag of bones up from his crypt and into our classroom. Olaf Kirk went on. Due to the global events which have recently made their way into our little town, the board feels compelled to take drastic action. For the safety of our students and teachers alike, Pierre Primary School will be closed until further notice. The hum among the students grew to a roar. This time old Olaf didn't attempt to quiet us. He merely seated his front and center position back to Miss Carrington and left the room. She tried to regain control, but apparently no longer had any, not until further notice, anyway. As students packed their belongings, she implored us to bring our books home and keep up with daily lessons, but she would have had more success asking a snake to tap dance. Sure, our freedom had come through unconventional means, but it was still freedom, and we were dead set on milking every second from it. It was the gift of a second summer, a new lease to maraud about our forest and lakeshore. During our walk home, Walter and I made plans to trap a bear, build a wigwam, kill and skin a couple raccoons to make caps from their hides, draw a map of our isle, and restore the cabin which stood upon it. With indefinite amounts of time and a horde of imagination, we would accomplish every goal set before us. When we arrived home, 
I was surprised to see Daddy smoking his pipe on the front porch. A tumbler of brownish liquid sat in his other hand, which he eyed earnestly as it sloshed to the rhythm of his ponderous rocking. What you doing home, Daddy? Walter asked. Without waiting for an answer, he added, Someone from the school board came in today. He told us school's canceled. Daddy nodded thoughtfully. I heard that would be happening. And I'm home for a similar reason. Mr. Jansen and I decided to keep the mine closed until we can figure out how to deal with this flu. Okay, well, we're gonna go play, my aloof brother replied, and off we went to make good on his word. Before you go, Peter, said Daddy, verbally restraining me as Walter marched inside to drop off his school bag. Make sure you're back here by five o'clock. Dr. Schumacher is stopping by to check on your eye and remove your stitches. Okay, Daddy, I replied before hurrying off after my brother. Such is the way of the young. In our short-sightedness, we neither knew nor cared to know the flu's devastating impacts on the wider world around us. Our sole concern was for the immediate implications upon our tiny kingdom at Asphodel Glade. By our reckoning, it was the flu which had bequeathed unto us the manifold possibilities of newfound liberty. And so, despite its accompanying undercurrent of fear, the flu became something of a hero to the schoolchildren of Pierre, Pennsylvania. It was a savage, revolutionary leader, upending the establishment and placing itself into the seat of highest authority. Its first magnanimous decree? No more school! Be free! Like peasants suckered by the candy-coated speech of a demagogue, we rode high on the flu's promises of an eternal summer but its opiates wouldn't remain in our system long. In only two days' time, the one we hailed as our hero would remove its mask. Then we would finally see the ruthless dictator for what it had been all along.